You got me, Greg? Thanks. Thank you, Tom, for leading. Uh, for those of you that know me, you know I'm a bit of a guitar freak, and I, I love hearing the 12-string guitar. It takes me back to the late 1960s. And yes, I'm that old. It's my shiny bald head, Merv Campbell, uh, who was a preacher who preached for us last week. And if you missed that comment, he uh, was teasing me from the pulpit, him and his young self from Northern Ireland. Uh, I'm Sicilian and Irish, Merv, and Dutch and Scottish. And as far as I know, I have no accent except that from uh, Steve Smith of Ohio or maybe California radio voice. So we have been uh, beautifully enjoying the accents of our uh, Northern Ireland preachers and our Scottish preachers as Eric has been on vacation. And yes, I'm looking forward to Eric coming back and preaching for you too. Uh, But I'm glad to be up here today and being able to preach the word to you. Uh, I'm grateful for everybody who's been praying for me. In case you're wondering, yes, I am trembling up here. I'm not quite at home up here in this pulpit. Uh, we all look forward to hearing Eric and Curtis's preaching, and uh, when we get up, get a chance to get up here and deliver the Word of God to you, it's a real privilege, but we also want to handle it with some fear and trembling, and that is going on right now. I'm glad my legs are behind the pulpit. You can't see that going on. Uh, thankful to everyone who has, who's prayed. I'm grateful to you. Grateful to the preachers who've been taking uh, Eric's place all, all summer. Well, the Apostle John is the one I would really like to aspire to. Uh, He's the love apostle. He is the one who Jesus called his beloved or the one whom Jesus loved. But Peter's the one I can mostly relate to, and it's not because of anything holy. It is because of his stumbling blocks. His ability to open his mouth and insert his foot or speak without thinking first. Uh, Such an awkward and, and terrible sin. And I I stumble with that. And so for those of you who were at the men's breakfast when I started a little riff a few months ago, you know that of me. So uh, Peter's the apostle who would rush to defend our Lord with words and with his sword, only to be chastised by Jesus and told that he did not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And even to have been called Satan by our Lord on one instance when he did not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. He swore never to desert our Lord Jesus, but then he denied him even three times that very night. And he also wept bitterly over his sin. He walked on water for a short time, but then fell into the deep when he lost faith. And he also, after having been filled with the Holy Spirit, preached boldly and fearlessly to thousands, winning many over to Christ, not to mention miraculously raising some from the dead and healing others. Peter was the rock upon whom our Lord Jesus said he would build his church. I still fall short of all that miraculous stuff. And as far as I can tell, there's only a couple hundred out here today and not thousands, but still I feel compelled to give you this uh, message from Peter's first epistle, this message which calls us exiles and tells us that we're to be holy. We're to be holy. How do we do that? Peter was a rebel against God like the rest of us before his conversion. Everything he did showed it. But after Jesus' death and resurrection, he not only was thought of as an apostle, one of the close, intimate twelve, 
but one of God's main messengers in the New Testament. Need to pray now as I begin preaching to you from First Peter. Need to pray so that everything comes out right, and so that you are exhorted for the day, so that some may be saved. I'm going to pray now if you bow your heads. Gracious Father, be with us now as I preach from your word, that I may receive the anointing of your Holy Spirit, so that the words of my mouth may be truthful and go out, as you have said, to the congregation and not come back empty, so that some may be saved, so that others may be encouraged, corrected, strengthened, so that they may become competent men and women of God, loving you above all things and loving their neighbors and even their enemies as their own selves and bringing glory to your name. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, your son, our Lord, I do pray. Amen. I'd like to read the text to you now. And if you didn't bring a Bible with you, we have church Bibles underneath the seats in front of you. If you don't have one in front of you, you can look at your neighbors. It's the blue and white paperback cover. And this text is on page 656 if you're using that Bible. If you don't own one, you're welcome to take one home and call it our gift. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were once ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a spotless lamb without blemish. So that's the full text today. But I'd like to narrow it down a bit so that we can get a focus on two main points for those of you that take notes. What it means for all of us to be exiles, that's point number one. And point number two, what it means for we exiles to follow this command from our God to be holy. Uh, I guess I would narrow the message down by saying we, are, we who are born again are exiles of God's kingdom. So during the time of our exile here, we must be holy. And I'd like to give the message by breaking down verses 15, 16, and the end of 17 while using the others for support for those verses, if you go with me. So to get the full background of Peter's message today, I'd like to go back to verse 1. That is 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, and kind of give you a background on this. I'm going there now. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, that's who the letter's from, obviously, to those who are elect exiles in the dispersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Asia, and Bithynia. And I'm going to boldly add here today, Roseville, Sacramento, Folsom, Citrus Heights, California, the United States, the world. Now back to scripture. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Excuse me. That's who this message is to, both 2,000 years ago and today. And I'm going to use 2 Timothy 3.16 as backup for that, for those of you that want to look that up later. So here's my point today. Number one, as Christians, we're exiles from heaven. 
And so I want to stop there, and I want to get a hold of what it means to be in exile. So Peter's calling the recipients of this letter exiles, and that's also everyone in this room who's a Christian. So stay with me now. I'm going to jump to verse 17 real quick. If you're following along in your Bibles, I'm going to read from verse 17. And if you call on him as father, that is, if you're a born-again Christian by your own profession here today, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So if you call on him as father, that is, if you're born again, he's calling you in exile. And he's telling you to fear God. And the kind of fear he's talking about is the fear that uh, Eric did an entire sermon series on earlier this year. And for those of you who are visiting, uh, we did a sermon series on fear. And the kind of fear we're talking about is not the kind of fear where you go and cower in your room and, oh, God's going to send me to hell, so I'm never going to listen to his message. I don't want anything to do with that kind of a God. That's not the kind of fear we're talking about. We're talking about the kind of fear that you as children of God should have for a father who disciplines you sternly because he loves you and the kind of fear that turns your heart, as Eric said in one of his sermons, unto repentance, unto forgiveness. It's like the kind of fear that a child has for his father when he knows he's going to get whipped. Uh, he just got through violating one of the father's rules, and so now he's going to go to the woodshed, and you're afraid of that. You know there's going to be pain involved but you know that it's going to be for your own good. That's how the Father disciplines you, and that's the kind of fear that we're to have. Kids, did you know that if your mom and dad's a Christian, they're not from this planet anymore? Did you know that? They're aliens. Not kidding. Not E.T., but, but rather they're not from this land, not in their hearts. Men and women, did you know that? Peter's calling you an exile. He's calling you an alien. You're from a foreign land and not from the earth. So let's take a look at that. Uh, even though at the beginning of this letter, it seems as though Peter is, and some of the commentators agree, uh, Peter is calling the people exiles because they are cast out of their Jewish homeland and into these regions that he's talking about because of their new Christian beliefs. They're not welcome from where they're at anymore. The Jews, and he is talking largely to Jews in this letter, but that transmits in the New Covenant to everybody who's born again. We're talking about exiles. We're talking about believers in Christ now. They're away from their homeland, but really I believe he's exclusively saying that you're exiles from your body, if you will. Your inner spirit's now been changed. You're born again. You're changed from the inside out. So you can no longer feel at home in this world. So I'm going to go uh, and and I'm going to go to the Bible after I define the word exile. But let's go ahead and uh, and define the word exile real quick. First of all, the nature of the word exile is to be a person that is living away from your native land, either because you chose to leave your native land, or you were forced to because of your religious or political beliefs. That's normally what we, what we mean when we say the word exile. So you're an alien. You're a foreigner when you're in exile. You're in a foreign land. You're not used to the ways of your land. And that's what makes you an exile here. Let's look at the different translations of the Bible and what it calls exiles in this 
verse in 1 Peter. First of all, I'm going to look at the English Standard, the Christian Standard, and the New Revised Standard translations of the Bible. It calls Christians exiles. The New King James, pilgrims. That's my favorite. Uh, the New American Standard calls us aliens. The King James, strangers. That's not my favorite. Uh, if you're in exile, you're not living in your homeland but you've got to stay for a while in a foreign land. Some Bible verses to prove my point, that Peter is referring to exiles here as aliens on earth. First of all, he calls the exiles elect in those first verses. He calls them elect, which means that they are the ones chosen by God to be his holy children, and he chose them even before the world began. And so this is a controversial doctrine if you're not from a, a Reformed church. So I'm going to read this to you in 2 Timothy 1, 8 and 9. If you want to turn there in your Bibles now, and I apologize, I didn't get the page on that from the church Bible, but you can listen along if you can't find one of those. So I'm going to go to, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy, not 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy verses 8 and 9 to prove that the elect were people that were chosen from before the world was began. It says, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So that's 2 Timothy 1, 8 and 9. So he calls the exiles elect, which means they are the ones chosen by God to be his holy children. So how does this make them exiles on earth? Because they're chosen by God to do his will amongst all the other peoples on earth who will not be seen to be doing his will. So in their hearts and in their spirits and by their actions, they will be seen to be different from everyone around them. And they'll feel it. We'll feel it. Some of you have. Uh, persecution here in America is watered down. It's not real persecution. We haven't really felt the fury of it yet. But they've, even now they've changed the laws in California so that you cannot recommend the Bible as a book for someone who wants to change their lifestyle. So it's starting. It's kicking in. On the East Coast and in the upper Midwest, people have lost their businesses because they've been sued over laws like these. It's starting. But in Iran and Iraq, people have actually been beheaded because they refused to agree with Islam when confronted. That's real persecution. Anyway, here, you'll probably be ridiculed. So kids, you'll be playing with your friends. You'll be wanting to do the things that God wants you to do because that's what your parents taught you to do even before you become a Christian. But the other children may want you to do the things that your mother and father have taught you not to do. And they'll make fun of you because you don't want to join in with them and do the things that God doesn't want you to do. Men and women of God, you'll be found to be doing holy things, and it won't be a burden for you. You'll be taking joy in that. Uh, we've been preaching about enjoying the vanity all, all summer uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes, the vanity being referred to here as the daily grind and toil of life, everything you do every day, day in, day out. Same thing. Even your accomplishments only bring you that much joy just for a short time, and so it's vanity. 
but those of us who have been given the Holy Spirit and are born again have the power to enjoy the vanity. Uh, Eric's been talking about that all summer. You'll be enjoying the vanity and your freedom and not using your freedom for a cover-up for evil, and everyone else around you will know you're different. As you're doing holy things and enjoying them, all those who are not believers will be doing the opposite and wondering why you are not being called in to join their revelry, the things that God says not to do. Or perhaps, if you're blessed, they'll be noticing the things that you do and not wanting to do the things that they do anymore. And they want what you have. And you'll be able to lead them to the Lord in this. That's when you want to be able to give an account of the gospel in word to them. Friends that see what you have. You have joy even in your suffering and in your pain and in the toil and in the vanity. And they want that. They just can't seem to be satisfied. There's depression that kicks in. There's uh, suffering. People die around them. And they see that you are strong through all of that, having endured the same things. And that's when you can give them the gospel. But most will probably turn away from you in one way or the other. And that makes you a stranger in a foreign land or an alien. So how do we know the exiles in this statement are the ones chosen or elected to be these different ones of God? I'm going to say by the next three statements in 1 Peter, and I'm going to go there now. 1 Peter, starting with chapter 1, verse 2, I'm going to read you a few verses that I think back up the point. Elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Christ Jesus and for sprinkling with his blood. So exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, God chose them before the ages began. In the sanctification of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is sanctifying them by causing them to do good works, that is to fight sin, endure suffering, and actually find joy in the things of God, not thinking of themselves as a stick in the mud or I can't do this and I can't do that. We know if we're born again, we have a lot of freedom in Christ, not freedom to use, to use it as a cover-up for doing the sinful deeds or to any longer enjoy the sin, but rather to enjoy the things of God. We don't feel burdened by it. And then last but not least, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. They're obeying Christ because they've been born again due due to his blood-bought sacrifice. When God stood in the way for the Father's wrath for you, that is what he did to save you from your sins. And for everybody who would believe in that, those are the people that are referring to in the New Testament when they say you are to be sprinkled with his blood. It's a New Testament reference from an Old Testament passage. They're the favored ones. They're set apart by God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to do his work. These are the elect exiles. These are everybody in this room who calls himself born again, everybody in this room who calls themselves Christian. The big one to me that proves we're elect exiles here on earth, um, and to prove my next point on holiness, is in Philippians three seventeen to 20. If you want to turn there now, again, I failed to get that from the, the church Bible, but if you want to listen along or can't find it quickly, Philippians 3, I'm going to read verses 
17 to 20. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We were blessed enough to have gone over the book of uh, Philippians also. And uh, I remember that that phrase, their God is their belly. I'm patting my own tummy right now. Uh, One of the the things that you're going to find out that I'll mention in a few minutes, one of the things that distract us from God is using anything except the Holy Scriptures to take your mind off of your, your current suffering. So I think that's what we're talking about when we say their, their God is their belly. They glory in their shame. They're glad they're in revelry. Those are the people of your new land. Your spirit's been set free. Even though you live in the same home, you're no longer from this land. You feel strange about participating in those sinful things, hopefully shame, but the others in your new land glory in their shame. And then it says right here in verse 20, our citizenship is now in heaven. So where's our new citizenship? It's not here. If you're a born-again believer, it's in heaven. That's where we belong, and we are on the way. We are on the way. So, okay, we're exiles, exiles of God's heavenly kingdom. So that brings me to the second point today. As exiles, how should we behave in a foreign land? The text has our answer. As exiles, be holy. We need to remember there's an exhortation that's a command here in these verses today. Be holy. Let's read it again in 15 and 16. That is 1 Peter chapter 1. Verses 15 and 16. I'm going to read it now. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So we exiles from heaven are to be holy in all of our conduct, our actions, our speech, and eventually even our thought. This passage is referring to the holiness of God, which even exceeds the Old Testament practices of setting apart of a of a lamb for sacrifice. That was called holiness. That was a holy lamb. He was to be separated or to set apart for sacrifice. He had to be perfect. The Levite priests were to be separated from the natural things that the other members of the tribes of Judah were able to do. They had to be apart from all of these things. But we're talking about the holiness of God, more of a new covenant reference. That is a holiness that we can't even define, although we try. We're going to go ahead and try to define holiness. Here we go. It means to be set apart from that which is evil or that which is all natural. Got that definition from most of the commentators that we listen to in our theological studies. It means to be set apart from that which is evil or that which is all natural. I'm not referring to the fact that a lot of us like to eat all natural foods now. I'm talking about 
from the things of the creation of God rather than the things of the creator. So we're to be set apart from the creation, from all the rest of the creation, which is not separated out, which is not born again. And that's the kind of holiness we're talking about. John Piper, one of the commentators we like to listen to around here, calls the holiness of God this. The supremacy of his infinite perfection and value in and over all the universe. The supremacy of his infinite perfection and value in and over all the universe. And he admits himself, we don't even know if that covers it. That man does not think as God thinks. And God does not think as man thinks is an understatement. We don't know if we can really define holiness. We just know that we would call it sinlessness, perfection. So when God Almighty tells us to be holy, we're to be holy unto him and to be set apart for his glory, for holiness by his definition, that is, for holiness unto him. This passage, however, cries out for action on the part of the believer. And before I give you a few examples, we need to look at an exhortation in verse 13. If we don't look at this command first, We'll do it all wrong. We'll use the Bible as a rule book, and we'll try to win favor with God or other Christians coming here on Sunday, putting on a good face. We'll try to use it as a a rule book. This is what you need to do in order to go to heaven, and that's practicing legalism, and you've seen that. We use it in judgmentalism when we look at other people that are apart from the church, and we become judges for them, which the Bible forbids. That's one way to practice legalism, but... The main way is to try to practice rules following. The Bible is rules instead of being born again and God giving you the power to follow these rules, if you'll think of them that way, and find joy in that because you know that when you do that, it brings glory to God. If instead, though, we look upon and absorb the next verse, we'll understand what it takes to be holy as much as we humanly can be. So I'm going to I'm going to read those verses now. Again, we're still in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So there it is. Set your hope on grace. That's the exhortation I'm talking to you about now. Without the grace, it says the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I say also the grace that you've been given at the time of your conversion. That is what you need in order to be holy in the way that these verses are describing. Or you'll be practicing empty legalism. When you were made to be born again only by grace that has converted your heart, Can you attempt to practice true holiness? The scripture says we're to be sober-minded. We're to prepare our minds for action. Sober-minded. Stay clear-minded. Don't do anything that distracts you from the reality which is Christ Jesus, the end goal. Not in substance, not in thought, not in action. There's the obvious ones. Don't get drunk. Don't use drugs that distract your mind from the reality that is Jesus Christ or anything in life that you need to do to accomplish being holy. But there are some things that are not as obvious. There are other addictions out there, if you want to call them that, or idolatries. 
Um, there's food. There's uh, uh, TV programs. Uh, pornography is a big thing that men turn to now to um, seek some kind of solace. So these are all sinful behaviors, even though food might not compare to pornography in your mind. Uh, it's easy for me to get lost in my food. Uh, music, easy for me to get lost in my music. The things that you own, you're collecting things. Those are all things that can cause you to not be sober-minded. It's not just the drunkenness and the drugs. So, some remedies. Read your Bibles and meditate on God's Word as an act of putting on your armor against conforming to the world. So, you've heard that before from the pulpit. Read your Bible and meditate on God's Word. And you say, amen, and it's Christianese, and you say, good. But what does that really mean to do? A few years ago, uh, I got a recommendation to read my Bible like this. Open it to your text for the day, whatever text you want to choose, whatever plan you've got, even if it's this open and let the pages, okay, that's where the Holy Spirit wants me to read today. That's fine too, but pray before you read. I got it recommended to me to pray to have God reveal what he wants me to know out of these passages, whether it's random or whether it's a reading plan. And I don't take huge passages either. I take small passages, just a few verses, maybe a sentence or two. And then I stop in the middle and pray again. And that's when I do my prayer requests. I do my prayer requests, even for the sick, according to the verses I read that day. You might think they have nothing to do with the sick until you ask God to reveal to you what he wants you to know that day. That is, if you are in Christ, if you are born again. Uh, I started doing that a few years ago, and I stopped checking off Read Bible today as a checklist. It meant nothing to me before that, and I, and I endured long periods of, okay, I, I didn't read for two weeks. First, I skipped a day, and then two weeks, and then it turns into a month, and the next thing you know, you're coming up to one of us pastors, and you're saying, I need someone to walk with me for a while because I'm in sin. Now, don't, don't be discouraged from coming up to one of us pastors and saying, I need someone to walk with me for a while because I'm in sin. That's what we want you to do. But you know the first thing we're going to say, those of you who have come up and walked with Eric and myself, Curtis and Greg Balser, you know the first thing we're going we're gonna to turn you back to. We're going to turn you back to reading the word and praying. One's very little good without the other. And now I'm lost. <laughs> so read your Bibles and meditate on God's word. <laughs> so my reading has never been the same. It's not cerebral anymore. It's spiritual. And we go on. Do not be conformed to your former passions. You were ignorant then due to the hardness of your hearts, the Bible says. That's the kind of ignorance that's not just, okay, I don't understand what the scripture says. It's the kind of ignorance that doesn't allow you to understand the scriptures to begin with. The hardness of your heart is referring to not being born again. God has not opened up your eyes in faith to understand salvation, much less read the Bible and use it in proper form. But now God's giving you hearts of flesh. Don't act in ignorance. So now you've got the Holy Spirit. You're born again. Take action. Be holy. So don't act in ignorance, but in the wisdom of God, staying away from your former sins. 
and you know what your former sins are. Some of us have big ones. Others, we think not so big. Not everybody had a background like some of us pastors um, where we were just debauched in our younger lives. And it was easy for us to see the conversion. It was like night to day. But what about those of you who have been churched? What about those of you who have been churched your whole life? I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church. And I understand the teachings there to be the reverse of what we learn now. So I can't really say I grew up in the church as described in Scripture. If you're born again, I've got a few suggestions for you to practice holiness. First Peter, beginning with 2, verse 1. Put away all malice from your heart. That is, stop thinking thoughts that accomplish destruction to your fellow man or committing actions that accomplish destruction to your fellow man. Malice is hatred. Put away all deceit from your heart. Stop lying to yourself. Stop lying to others. Confess your sinfulness. Seek forgiveness and give it freely. Before you're born again, you are practicing deceit. First of all, you're lying to yourself. You're saying, there's nothing wrong with me. I don't need this savior they're talking about. So you're deceiving yourself. So why wouldn't you deceive others? It's a natural act for you to deceive others. So one thing that we born-again believers don't want to humble ourselves down and admit we were liars before. All day, all night, liars, everything we do. So don't put it down to your heart that you have never been a liar. Put away all envy from your heart. Stop being jealous of the talents of your friends, family, others, your fellow man who's not even a believer. And humble yourself. If they've got something you don't and you need it, ask for help. Remember, God puts strangers in your lives on purpose, believers and unbelievers. Remember that he gave you all of your talents and skills, your job, your food, everything in your house, clothes on your back and the roof over your head freely. They're all from God. I know you work hard with your hands and you think you deserve it, but read again. All things are from God. Put away all slander. This is pretty close to malice. Stop telling lies about your fellow man in order to destroy his or her character. Jesus says this sin is equal to murder in the Sermon on the Mount. Destroying a person's character, same thing as destroying the person's body. Maybe worse. Men, beginning with me, I stand up here as God's own hypocrite in this. Serve your wives. Remember the love you had for her on honeymoon night. And I don't mean that kind of love, men, because I know your minds are going to go there real quick. I'm talking about at the beginning of your marriage, or if some of you didn't have that at the beginning of your marriage, you've grown in this. Remember when you couldn't stand, this is my own example, to be across town from her only 20 minutes away. Couldn't stand it. Single men, here we go. Stop looking at women as though they're a buffet or a fine craft beer. Think of her as a sister and learn about her. Find out about her. Learn to really love her as a friend before dare approaching her 
to ask her out for that first date. Women, and this is hard for me, serve your husbands, even when we're jerks, and love us and honor us and respect us. When you do this, you win us over. Your children take note, and they grow up to honor God. I have a loving, godly wife. I, can't, I could just list her attributes. Some of you know her. She prays for so many at this church and so many women. So when I say that, I feel like God's own hypocrite up here. But we sin against each other every day. I know she'll admit this to you. 31 years of marriage. Sometimes people will walk up and say, we want you to walk with us for a while. We want to know what it means to be a godly marriage. And the very first thing we have to tell them, sitting on the couch or sitting across from us, we sin against each other every day. Every day. We want to admit that right up front because we're still somewhat enslaved to these sinful bodies. And we want people to know that that we agree with First John that says we still have sin. Anyone who says they don't have sin calls God a liar. So when I say, women, serve your husbands, I'm doing that from a hypocrite's point of view. Children, obey your parents as if God himself stepped down from the heavens and told you to clean your room, make your bed, don't tell lies, don't steal. Unbelievers, none of this can be accomplished by any of you. If you're not sure if you're a believer or not, then it would be safe for me to say to you to assume that you're not a believer in Christ yet. This is not a punishment from the pulpit of Veritas to say this. This is grace and mercy because you're here. You're here right now. And we do not believe in anything that wasn't destined to be at this church. You are here on purpose. You're here to learn that God is to be glorified in all things. So I'm going to go back for a minute and touch on something I did a minute ago before I, I give you some, some advice, if I, if I can. First of all, back when we were talking in verses 13 and 14, it says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, grace, I defined it in one of my earlier sermons this year, is unmerited, undeserved favor given to you by God in order to change your heart, your spiritual heart, and your spirit over to that which is called a born-again Christian. Grace is unmerited, undeserved favor that changes you from your flesh state over into a new creation. You will feel the difference. It's harder for those of you who have been churched your whole life to understand what that saving grace is once you've become a preteen, a teenager, a young man in your 20s, young woman in your 20s. It's harder than if you've had one of these dramatic lives that were just crazy. So grace is what is going to change you. And the way you receive that grace is by hearing what I'm about to tell you. So here it is. 
There is a real, true, and living, pure, sinless, and holy God. You can find all of this out beginning in Genesis 1 through Genesis 3. He made the whole universe and everything in it for his own glory, with man as the crowning peak of all of his creation. God was man's true father. But man, lured by his own sinful desire, disobeyed a simple command of God after having been warned sternly of what the consequences would be. They would be the death penalty. Not like you think of it in San Quentin or one of the other states, but rather eternal death. First, the death of the body, and then the death of the soul. You would never be with him. God imposed this penalty, death, for his disobedience because he's a holy and just God and could not let his creation go astray as its own judge. Thus ending this once beautiful God the Father and man his child relationship. He cut you off. He cut me off. He cut everyone off. And we inherited that sin, character, not a single sin, as I was raised to believe, The original sin was a single sin, but rather this character of sin that was developed from that one sin. God cursed us. He cut off our relationship. But God, being rich in mercy and full of grace for his creation, all of mankind, promised one day to send an advocate. That is someone to stand in the place between God the Father and the devil. Someone to take our penalty for us, that death penalty that he imposed upon us. Later on, that advocate turned out to be his very own son. We know his name, Jesus, and we call him the Christ. When I say we, I'm talking about people who've been through this transformation and are now believers. And even God's very own son, who was together with the Father, pure and holy from the beginning, when he came in the flesh he would be seen to be as totally obedient to God the Father. In doing his Father's will, Jesus took that long-promised penalty, the penalty for sin that was promised to man for his disobedience, that death penalty. By his Father's will, because his Father was a just God, and by Father God's own arrangement, his son Jesus was beaten. Excuse me, to, win, to within an inch of his life. The nails were driven through his hands into a cross upon which he was propped up in the air until he suffocated. You have to forgive me, I'm remembering my former sins that he took with him. That was the death penalty of the day and he took the sins of the whole world with him for those who would believe for those whom God would call before you were even born, before he made the earth by his unmerited, undeserved favor of you. There is no reason for you to be saved that is of this earth. Only the reason of God the Father himself. 
That's why we're to be holy children. Now let's finally go to 1 Peter 1, verses 19 and 20. I'm actually going to start back on 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were once ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. That's why we're to be holy children, men and women. Believe that today, would you? If you're an unbeliever, believe that. If you have been born again after a gospel message, come up and talk to the pastor who preached it. It says in Romans 10, 17, that you will be saved from hearing the gospel preached if you're cognizant, if you're cognizant of that. Come and believe it. If you've been born again, you'll come up and you'll talk to the preacher or to somebody to help with the next move. If you've not, if you turn away and walk away, then come back again next week and the following week and the following week to your Bible-believing and preaching churches until the Father causes you to believe. Let's pray. Father God, we do praise you and thank you for your word through which the good news is delivered, through which we are exhorted, that is, encouraged through education by the mouth of God. We thank you for your word through which we are healed in the body, but mostly in the spirit. We thank you for the congregation of the saints that comes to hear your word, And we praise you for all of that. And we pray that your word would not go out empty, but come back full so that the saints would be saved and exhorted, strengthened. We pray all these things in the name of Christ. Amen.